the same nightmare. We've all imagined a school year where each day we would come home wondering if we had been infected, if we had infected others, if we would find out two weeks later that we were at the center of the next outbreak. If the 2020-21 yearbook would feature obituaries. So once again, here we are. School workers are in the position of trying to do our jobs, trying to make the best decisions on how to support our young people in a society that values profit over human beings' lives. And the stakes have never been so high. The problem of a safe and just return to school affects all of us differently. It affects classroom teachers like myself differently from custodial workers or food service workers, differently from students or working parents. But it affects us all. And that means that we all deserve a say in shaping the solution to this problem. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEW LP Brattleboro, 107.7, Brattleboro's community radio station. Indigo Radio is a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and I think Twitter now, although I don't know how to work it yet. (laughs) My name is Becca, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Indigo Radio. It's school time. Families and teachers all know what that means, or at least we thought we did. I wake up in the morning thinking, are we really going back to school during a pandemic? And you know that schools will do the best they can. But what does that mean in a country that has 25% of the world's coronavirus cases, but only 4% of the world's population? Do we feel that our society as a whole is doing everything that it can to keep people safe? Teachers are already back at school, working in some sort of hybrid model for professional development. We have teachers all together in the auditorium while other teachers are at home streaming in because they have had to quarantine after traveling to a yellow or a red zone. I can't even begin to imagine what school will be like when people get sick. There's a lot of talk in schools of the inevitability that we will go fully remote. But at the same time, Phil Scott, Vermont's governor, is saying that he aims to open all schools to full capacity in September. What happens when it gets cold and we can no longer keep the windows open and the dampers in the ventilation bringing in new air to circulate. We are lucky that most people in Vermont have not experienced the health concerns related to this extremely contagious virus. The nature of people's actions make me wonder if we think that we are immune. I wanted to know more about the science behind decisions that should be made in school reopening. So I called Jim a high school teacher. Jim, we've been having a lot of conversations around reopening, and I've learned a lot from you in understanding some of the science 
um, behind what we should be doing to have a safe and just school reopening. You have a lot of knowledge that I'd love for you to share with our listeners. Well, thanks for asking. Um, I wish I didn't have to. (laughs) I'd really like to just teach music. That would be my preference. But Jim, a lot of your research has been around air quality in schools. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what you think needs to happen in order for schools to open safely this fall. Sure. I mean, the reason I started um, trying to learn more about air quality is because it seemed like most of the other things were pretty um, set and that we are more concrete, I think. Um, You know, walls are more concrete than air uh, for most people. So we pretty much... Uh, had it down that we needed to wash our hands and we even if we didn't understand why could you know say six feet standing six feet away from somebody that's not too hard to do I could do that I can wear a mask that's not too hard to do Um, but when it when it gets into um, the idea of these little tiny particles that are called aerosols um, that are less than a tenth of a micron which is really teeny teeny tiny (laughs) When you talk, start talking about what those are doing and how we can catch COVID from that, then it, it just starts to get to be overload and it's really hard to, to understand. There actually is some cool things, you know, because learning is cool. Masks, for example, the way masks work, if you have a mask that's rated, say, N95, that's rated for a certain size particle that will filter 95% of that particle out of the air. Um but it actually does higher filtration for particles that are bigger or smaller, which is that's just a really interesting idea. So um, the smaller particles tend to do what's you know wiggling basically, and they get caught up in the in the mask. The bigger particles just get caught up as you would expect, like a sieve. Um, yeah, the, the the science of it is is really interesting. If it weren't just so um, important and, and life-threatening to, to get it wrong. I have, a, I have a question, actually, from what you've said. Not very many people are talking about the aerosols. They're st- still using the language around um, respiratory droplets. And I'm wondering if you could explain the difference between those and why those would be different in terms of protocols for safety. Well, what we know about diseases seems to be stuff based on what diseases we already saw, yeah? So um, uh, particles that come out in your mouth don't just, uh, they're not just in the ether, right? It's not a vacuum. So they hit water, they hit dust, they hit other things that actually they join on to and that makes them bigger. So a lot of it is droplets, um, either because it's attached to water or to, um, like I say, other matter that's floating in the air, dust and stuff. And fortunately for us, those things, the gravity affects them, so they fall to the ground. And once they're on the ground, if you don't take your hand and, and wipe them up and then lick your hand or lick the ground or something, you know, they're, they're pretty much out of your way uh, and they're not going to hurt you. If... Um, they're too small, though. They tend to just float. So um, aerosols are the ones that tend to be smaller than the average COVID size, which is 0.125 microns. And I don't know exactly the definition when a droplet becomes an aerosol. 
but just mm-hmm. kind of think of them as a continuum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And so six feet and masks are helping us with the respiratory droplets, but aerosols kind of can float around the room from my understanding. And that's why our ventilation systems are such an important topic of conversation. Yeah. And um, originally um, people came out with the idea, well, masks aren't aren't helpful. Well, it depends, you know, what you're expecting them to do. If you have an N95 mask, it's blocking particles from coming in to you and will actually block in, I think, something like 99.99% of the particles that would get to you otherwise. N99s block even more, again, because of this thing that if it's bigger or smaller, it's actually blocked more efficiently than the, the target size. Um, and also, when the we first started, people... I say we, not me. Other people started studying the disease. Um, they were concerned, as with most diseases, of what happens when the droplets get on your hands and then they go in your mouth or your eyes or other ways to get into your body. Um, but it took quite a while for scientists who were looking at data to say, oh my gosh, you know, this looks like droplets just don't explain all these cases we're seeing. And finally, the WHO um, changed their recommendations, and then people started talking more about aerosols, and realizing that it was, I don't know if you could say primarily, but at some point, at the beginning point, it's, it's, a, it's an airborne disease. And so what's your understanding around what's needed for ventilation systems within schools? So school ventilations, here's what you have to do. You either have to block the virus from getting to you, and that means everybody wearing really high-quality masks and not hand-woven masks. I mean, medical and frontline people have, right? But there's just not enough around. In fact, most people won't even sell those to you because we're reserving them for people who are treating COVID patients. Mm -hmm. Um, then the other way you could do it is you could dilute it, which if you're outside, that's why it's okay to be outside a lot. You know, if you're, um, if the air is, if there's a, you know, gazillion particles of air to one particle of virus, then the, your, your chances of inhaling a lot of that virus, uh, are smaller. Uh, plus the fact that, um, the virus tends to dissipate in air and can't last in air um, just by itself for a long time. Uh, it, it can float and some people have found that the, you know, there's evidence of the virus for many, many days, but whether or not it has the same viral load, the, enough of the virus, I guess to say, that's mm-hmm. gonna infect you, usually outside it's not that much of a problem. but. The other way you can do it is you can have some kind of system that kills the virus. So there's such a thing as UV lights that people can put in ducts. And the UV light, as the virus passes there, with the virus passes through, um, the UV light kills the virus. Um, and finally, there's filtration. And you can have filters in your uh, heating and uh, ventilation system that filter those out. But most schools do not have the type of filter, the high enough value of the filter that's going to filter those out. So most schools have 
what's called MERV-8. And what the recommendation is, is MERV-13. But when you put a filter into a system, it blocks the air. I mean, that's normal, right? It's, it's supposed to, to, to be, um, to stop the air. Mm -hmm. it, it'll blow out the motor if it's too high. So many schools can't even put in the recommended MERV-13 or higher, and they can only put in 11s. And so what you, what you sacrifice is how many particles you can take out of the air. And when you're doing a MERV-11, you can take up to 80% out if it's a certain size, but there's an awful lot that's just passing right on through. And, and if it's recirculating, then it just keeps, you know, stays in that system. It's not going away, mm -hmm. um, which is why to make systems safe, you could have 100% outside air and just flood the room with air. But if you do that, you need to make sure that the air is being exchanged. So if you're just pushing it in and it's not going anywhere fast enough, you're not getting enough air changes per hour. So it's a combination of all these different things. There's not just one way to do it. Um, and it's not only million-dollar solutions that are needed. It's a combination of not having too many people, um, having fairly good filtration, having lots of outdoor air, um, and then kind of the protections that you have to stop um, the projections from even getting into the air, which is like masks and not talking too loudly, etc. Is there a way for schools to check how well their air is circulating? Yes, there's, there's ways that experts can do it and there's ways that regular people can do it. Um, don't ask me to do that unless I get a couple more hours to study. <laughs> but for example, if you don't know what the air exchanges are, um, you can go by CO2 if you have a room full of people and you can measure how that CO2 level changes over time. And um, their, their formulate for just judging based on CO2, how much air is being uh, filtered through that room. But that's not the best way. I mean, the best way is to get somebody who knows what they're doing and come in and check the ducts or check the airflow. There's so many different kinds of HVAC systems. It's, that's a really hard thing. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not trying to be an expert. I'm just trying to, to understand. And more importantly, I'm trying to get the people who are making decisions to put us back in schools to just say what the actual numbers are so we can understand it. I don't understand why we just don't have more information. I mean, I, I can understand if there's a sinister political reason for it, but I don't understand it from a you know scientific on the up and up reason. Right. Well, my guess is that a lot of schools don't have this information and it's like trying to find ways to push people back into school because that's what's being demanded of us. I don't know if they don't have access to information. There was an article in the Brattleboro Reformer just a couple days ago where they didn't have information on their HVAC system, and they just said, okay, well, we're not going to go back until we get that information. It'll take us a couple weeks to get that. It might be a, a question of practicality. It might be something that just people just didn't think about, which is okay, but now there's really no excuse not to think about it. It's right. in the news enough. 
What do you recommend for teachers who are going back who either don't have that information or are not satisfied with the information that they do have to enter back into their schools? What What would you suggest? This is why my whole summer has been just terrible because <laughs> I can see this coming the yeah. whole time. And I've been trying all summer to try to get the information out there and get people to, you know, answers and be thinking about it. You saw this coming in February. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, if you have the opportunity to, and you're only interested in protecting yourself, having a series of three N95 masks, um, you wear one on day one, you wear a different one on day two, wear a different one on day three, and each time you put the mask that you had in a paper bag, um, the virus should be gone based on uh, all the information that I've seen so far. The virus should be gone on that first mask on day four. So if you're only interested in protecting yourself and you can get three N95 masks, which is not necessarily a given, um, you can be pretty protected from, you know, maybe somebody between 95, 90, 99%. If you're wearing it correctly and if you're not touching the outside of it, you know, and all those other things, of course. But that doesn't do anything for other people. So, and then teachers have, you know, it's our first duty to, to keep the classroom safe. Mm-hmm. And so what you're really asking is, um, if the school is forcing you to go back into the classroom and you know you can't make it safe for your students, what is your reaction? It would be nice if there was a unionized response that I don't just mean through like teacher unions, but like a solidarity kind of thing where you weren't just standing by yourself making an individual decision. I think you can't be quiet about it. Mm-hmm. That's the worst thing. At least let people know. At least make it clear what's going on. And some people, it'll fall on deaf ears. And, but maybe some people will react. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jim, for continuing to speak up. Do what I can. Cannot rest until it comes. We believe in freedom. Hear me talking to you. We who believe in freedom and not rest until until the killing of black men, black mothers, sons is as important as the killing of white men, white mothers, sons. If you like it, we who believe in freedom, the older I get, the better I know that the secret of my going on is when the reins are in the hands of the young who dare to run against the storm. Cause to me, young people come first.
struggling myself don't need a whole lot i've come to realize that teaching others to stand up and fight is the only way my struggle You're listening to Indigo Radio on Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to follow more of our shows. And I would highly recommend a show that was done earlier in August um, called Corona Shock. That show really helped me think about what public health means during a pandemic and how we can best find ways to make sure that everyone stays as healthy as possible, that we don't put people into conditions that will cause the spread of the virus. And so now we're going to hear from a school worker. I asked her what she loved about teaching. There is an excitement that happens with getting all the new school supplies ready for each of the kids. And of course, I love the kids. That's that's my favorite, favorite part. But when they all come to school with all their brand new shoes and their shiny backpacks and new lunch boxes and just this eagerness to be beginning school, especially kindergarten. It's mostly the expression that they have on their face when they come to the door. That's one of the things that I really enjoy. I think a lot of teachers can relate to that. For sure. Um, so as this year is very different though, as we all know, re-entering school. And I'm wondering if you could speak generally about your concerns as we try to reopen schools during a pandemic? Yes, I've never quite felt this way. I uh, I feel like as we get closer, I'm being taken into this giant wave that's coming toward the shore and my feet are coming up off the sand. Like I feel like I'm being taken up into this thing that I, I don't understand. And while I know how to swim, I don't know if I know how to swim through this kind of an experience. As an educator of small children, I feel like the masks are going to be a huge thing to deal with as far as my own face being covered with a mask where they can't see my mouth moving, whether I'm smiling or any of the sort of facial things that kids look for. And the same goes for the child. I mean, half of our faces being covered is my main concern. I feel like socially, emotionally, all of that isn't really being taken into consideration. So I guess I just say the number one thing I'm worried about is masks. Um, number two, I would say I'm concerned about maybe it's not at my school, but maybe it's someplace else. But I reach out with grave concern and um, hope and fingers crossed that across the state and across the country, the least amount of people are affected by the disease. I mean, that's definitely something that's in the background going on. And it's strange to be starting a school year in a pandemic. It's just a very bizarre thing. So there's lots of concerns 
in that way. And then I guess the number three thing I would say is all of the protocols. And it feels as if those things have continued to just shift and change over the time since March and to be starting a year and then expect that we're going to have to continue to be flexible and adapt and say, oh, this policy is now this way and all of that. That's that's an incredibly difficult thing to do in a school environment. So I guess those are my top concerns. Thank you for letting me share those. Do you feel like from what you know about your school plans or just school plans in general in Vermont, do you feel like schools are safe to open? I don't feel that they're safe. Uh, number one thing, I guess, that I would mention is the air quality in a lot of the schools. I did happen to buy myself an air filter for my classroom using my own money yesterday, because if I have to be in that room for an extended period of time, I'd like to know that at least it's been filtered. Um, I know that they've said that they've worked on the HVAC systems in our building, um, but up until this point, they weren't working. So I'm, I'm hoping that they continue to function, you know, so I'd say that's, that's something that is on my mind right now, as far as schools, I have a gift of an amazing school board at our town that made sure to get tents. Those are going up. So I'll be spending a lot of time with the kids outside, but I don't know that everybody has that same opportunity. So, um, and you know, with that, comes cold weather not so long down the road. So while in the beginning, I'll be able to be spending time outside where it's safer, I'm not sure that that'll last forever. So, you know, sometimes schools are thought of to be in sort of a vacuum, right? And we know as teachers that we're also community members and we're also parents and we're also people in this world who are engaged in different activities. And so I'm wondering the concerns that you have as a teacher and about our schools, how do you think they connect generally to what's hap been happening in our society um, forever, but also particularly since the pandemic? Wow, that's 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 a great question. I, I think of a school as a microcosm of the world. And, you know, it doesn't really operate exactly like the rest of the world does, but what kind of happens in there is what's going on in a larger scale. And so I'd say that those two things are obviously connected. I've heard, um, so it's uh, Dr. Well, it's Ms. Dr. French, who is the head of the Department of Education. And then I hear Dr. Levine talking and um, there's a whole group of people at our, the top of Vermont who are saying, okay, we're in charge. We're saying kids need to get back. Um, in some cases, I think that they're they're better off being with their families at home in that little microcosm because they won't have to wear the masks and that sort of thing. When I think of what's going on out in the world, I'll just give an example of the other day um, stopping for gas and I needed to go inside to pay. So I went up to the door and I went in and there were two employees inside who were not wearing masks. So there were, a, there were six of us total in this gas station, and I was the only one wearing a mask. And I started to feel a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit concerned because from that day when I was getting my gas in less than a week, I'm expected to go into school, which, you know, is a microcosm for the world at large. So I'd say the mask thing, I mean, that's the thing I just keep thinking of is that that, mm -hmm. that at, at 
large in, in society, we're so divided. You know, we're being pushed back in because society needs us to be pushed back in. Um, and I'm concerned kids are going to get the wrong idea, ranging in ages from preschoolers up to high schoolers, up to college kids, about what is really important in our society because we're, we're placing all of that pressure to get back to normal if we want to call it that, quote unquote, back to normal on the backs of all of the school employees, of all of the kids that are expected to be back into the school system to get life back to normal when actually there's there's no way to do that. We mm-hmm. can't. Society can't go back. It isn't going to ever be, quote unquote, normal like that again. You know, it's a system that's been sort of it's been exposed, basically, that that there is systemic racism, that our that our medical system is failing, and that our schools are underfunded. I did hear on National Public Radio that 90%, 90% of our schools in our whole country have failing HVAC systems. And what that means to me is that they're underfunded and the and the the big problem of the of the building not being up to code like it should have been, all of a sudden we have to address it. And there's, there's no money for that either. So, you know, here are teachers having to go into a situation where we don't have the right protective equipment. I mean, I'm not being provided with, with proper face shields. I'm just having to get my own, you know, and that to me just shows that society at large, we're not prepared. We're not supported. There are some incredibly wealthy people in this country who, if they even just for a second figured, gee, maybe I could help out in some way. That, that that actually could happen. There's such a disproportionate amount of money that is being used at the very, very top. All the people who have all the money and they're, they're not helping out the people who are having to keep the economy going. I mean, I think that's such an important thing to bring up that we uh, don't want to go back to the normal either. A crisis can either thing, lead to things completely falling apart and get, becoming worse or they can lead to like people coming together to make it better, right? Right, exactly. And I just have this feeling that we're we're heading for something worse. I mean, after watching other parts of the country summer, and I have not stopped working since March, planning right. and thinking and trying to figure it out how to be supportive. Um, but I'm I'm pretty scared. Hmm. Yeah, and I don't think you're alone. And I think um, teachers have this general like wanting to sacrifice mm-hmm. for the greater good. Yes. And so I think a lot of people are going against what they think is right in order to try to build something that that works. Just because we're good natured and just because we want what's best and just because we would like to get, you know, our 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 teaching jobs sort of underway because that's what we do. It's our vocation. It's a choice we all made. Doesn't mean it's right now. It does not mean it's the right time. So yeah, yeah, that has me pretty concerned and and it's not fair that they're just assuming, well, you know, they'll, they'll do it because (laughs) that's how they are. Well, we might prove them wrong. Let's see. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think needs to happen in order for schools to open safely and justly? I would ask, that our federal government support all the people that they could support. Decide really who are the necessary people to be working. Support families to stay home. Pay parents to actually take care of their own children. If they're not 
needing to be out there because they don't work in a hospital or if they're not somebody who needs to provide food. And if we could just shut down, I mean, literally shut everything down for two months, mm-hmm. we would see a different situation on the other end. But mm-hmm. it needs to be a decision from the top down where there's support in place. People are able to be fed. People's rents and mortgages could be furloughed. I mean, all of that, if that all could happen where people could just take a breath and relax and know that they're safe and they're okay, I think in two months time, it would work. And life could maybe go back a little bit, not back to quote unquote normal, because I think we've learned a lot about our broken systems, having that time to allow the disease to go away and not think that the economy is the most important thing, but our health and our well-being is the most important thing. Rather than pushing everybody back into school and having these kids think that, you know, that it's safe or think maybe that we're lying because here we are, oh, we're fine, everything's great, let's open up. And that's just not true. Right. It's not fair to lie to these kids and to these families. Absolutely. I love that, that schools, the best way to reopen schools is if we actually shut down and really did quarantine for two months. <laughs> right. There wouldn't be a problem. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't be going up. And there is an uptick in Vermont right now, despite mm-hmm. the fact that during press conferences, they're trying to say, oh, everything's, you know, we're just fine. I heard them actually say, and I wrote it down. They said, you can expect that there will be outbreaks in schools. I mean, that to me, hearing Dr. Levine say that, I, I'm horrified. What do you mean that you can expect that there will be outbreaks in school? Oh, but we'll pounce on them right away and we'll get them all under control. That's not okay. There should be no outbreaks in schools. No children should be sick. No adults should be sick. No one should be exposed in that situation. That's not school. Right. And if we, if it were safe, we wouldn't all be wearing masks. We wouldn't all be removing all our furniture and having you know all the social distancing that's happening. That's not safe. And we can't tell kids it is. It's a lie. It's not safe. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's community radio station. We've been talking today about school reopening here in Vermont, and we heard from a teacher telling us about the importance of ventilation. We just heard from another teacher um, who talked about how School reopening needs to be put in the larger context of the society we're living in. Many questions are being raised during this time, such as are leaders making decisions based on the ever-changing science of the virus? Which science do we believe anyways? What will happen when someone gets sick? Do we have adequate ventilation to mitigate some of the risks of being indoors? We have known for decades that education is underfunded and our school buildings have not been updated as they should. Trying to open up schools during a pandemic is extremely difficult as one can imagine. But as we're in the process, we also learn that there is still lead in our pipes that we are supposed to be washing our hands in multiple times a day. One week out and we still have areas of the school that are unventilated or ventilation systems in classrooms that are not working properly. We find out that they're having to use chemical fogging at the end of the day for cleaning. There are so many health risks we are taking and I wonder 
Are school workers and children disposable? Some of these questions are why we've come together, the School Workers Action Committee. We're going to hear now from two of the organizers who have been part of the School Workers Action Committee, telling us a little bit about how it began, and then what our demands are right now. Well, thank you so much. I know you all are taking time out of your busy schedules, having already started your professional development. And I just thank you all for the work that you are doing. Bev, can you start us off with talking a little bit about the School Workers Action Committee? As we were discussing earlier, a lot of the groundwork was laid, I think, or, or what kind of moved us into action, the healthcare crisis, that while we were just fighting within our districts to, to have access to healthcare, and then seeing at the same time, you know, our students and their families weren't having access to this this basic human right. And then being inspired a lot by um, the different movements throughout the country, whether it was in Chicago or Arizona, LA, and wanting to move us more toward union that is fighting for common good for everyone and, and really tying our needs to those of our families and fighting for those things together. And then, you know, I think when the pandemic hit, I I just can remember so clearly having this conversation with Tev and us just talking about the unknown and the impact that the pandemic was going to have on our students, have on education, and really wanting and needing leadership and guidance and action within our union itself. And, and knowing that, you know, our state union has to answer to, what, 13,000 people. So they're appeasing a lot of members and, and just as wanting to be a catalyst for, for change. Then a couple of us came together and it's just grown from there. Now what we have been doing to try to organize around safe and just reopening. And so, Tev, I'm wondering if you could start us off explaining some of those demands. The SWAC, the Vermont School Workers Action Committee, has a petition out, um, which currently has some somewhere north of 200 signatures, um, placing two kind of broad demands um, on on the governor and the AOE and and the legislature. Um, the first one has to do with the reopening of schools, and it's to fully adopt and fund Vermont NEA's proposal for a phased-in approach to safely reopening Vermont schools, which is an extremely comprehensive document that is informed by professionals and paraprofessionals and other, you know, other staff who are experts in their own domain and really prioritizes the safety of everybody who works and goes to school in public schools, and which was essentially ignored by um, the the state task force, which which came up with the reopening plan. So for, I want to be clear that we're not asking to close the schools. We are asking to start the year remotely to ensure that nobody, student, teacher, paraprofessional, custodian, nobody is sent into a building where we, we can't guarantee at least that every possible precaution to keep people safe has been has been taken. And then the second demand comes from the, the first one because um, we recognize that that is a, a real hardship 
for parents um, who are, because they, for, for the most part, are, you know, in an economic position where they can't afford to go without income for very long, are anxious to get back to work. And I suspect a lot of them are willing to accept whatever the risk is because there's nothing they can do about it because they need to go back to work. So the second demand is essentially an extension of the social safety net that has been an extension and expansion of the social safety net that has been in place um, during the pandemic to support Vermonters throughout the economic crisis that that is coming through this pandemic, you know, the second Mm -hmm. great depression that economists are projecting we're entering. Um, So that includes things like cancellation of rent and mortgage payments. Um, So folks aren't getting evicted um, during a time where they can't work. Extension of unemployment benefits and paid sick leave um, to to everybody who needs it, all workers. Um, Free childcare for all essential workers. A lot of districts, locals are fighting to to get um, an MOU, which is a memorandum of understanding. It's basically a like an addendum to a contract to, to cover a temporary change in working conditions. And the fact that the vast majority of school boards in the state have not agreed to MOUs essentially yeah. means, according to Vermont labor law, that they are not recognizing that there has been a change in working conditions that we're also trying to push on. No, the, the other thing I just wanted to point out was was this unifying factor that I think you touched on, Teb, and that, you know, bringing together not only districts, but in within districts, um, school workers, there seems to always be this divide between, oh, professional staff and support staff. And we're trying to remove that divide, I feel, as a group and, and uniting us all. I mean, because how can we have equity when we have colleagues and school workers who are not making a livable wage while some of us are making a very comfortable livable wage. So I see that as another unifying factor of SWAC too. We're, we're trying to support each other in developing leadership skills. Um, our goal in doing that is, is to help strengthen our statewide union to be able to not simply like maintain the contracts that we have, but to um, win better working conditions for ourselves, better resources for public education, and to be part of a, you know, as you're saying, like a common good movement to move the needle on some of these like seemingly intractable injustices that everyone seems to recognize and nobody seems to be willing to do anything about. Um, So we're talking about the healthcare crisis, right? We should, we, we've had a law on the books for almost 10 years. It says we should have a universal publicly funded healthcare system, which would be a tremendous, um, boon, you know, to all of us who have trouble affording, um, and understanding our healthcare plans to the, you know, thousands of Vermonters who are uninsured or underinsured, including a lot of uh, people in education, mm-hmm. especially in early childhood ed. And mm-hmm. it would take like 20% off of the budget of, um, of you know, nearly every school district that goes toward private companies um, to provide health insurance. Mm-hmm. That's one example. I think, you know, systemic racism is is another where, you know, as educators, we are intimately acquainted with um, how systemic racism impacts the lives of our students. 
We've seen what has been accomplished by the uprisings over the past summer, but we've also seen like how much resistance there is to actually fundamentally changing some of the structures driving that. And again, I think that part of our task in SWAC is to like wake people up to our power and really I would say our responsibility to tackle to, to see our work as not just about what happens in our building, our bargaining yeah. unit, but in broader terms to, to like shape some of these things that definitely affect our mm-hmm. lives and our work um, and not just to be like victims of that. Right. And to hold, you know, state leadership accountable. I think that's really important because as we keep finding, we, we bury these social safety nets within school districts, uh, but underfund them. And, and we need to hold our leaders accountable. Absolutely. I'd just like to say that having um, a lot of presence from all these different locals across the state comes back and influences our, our own locals, right? Really great to be working with you all and having this opportunity that normally doesn't exist in a state where that's so rural and we're physically distant, but we're also distant in our organizing efforts as well. So it's great to be able to come together. On August 3rd, the School Workers Action Committee came together with teachers from across the country demanding a safe and just school reopening. Here in Vermont, we had school workers from early educators to university professors, counselors, special educators, paraprofessionals, and classroom teachers. We're going to go to some of their voices from that day on August 3rd. You'll hear first from Vicki, an early educator, then Rachel, a professor at UVM and a mother, and we'll close out with Mike, a paraeducator. Thank you so much for listening to Indigo Radio. Educators teach and nurture children before they enter the public school system. Our work is undervalued and under-resourced, Yet we know that children at this age are learning at lightning speed. In fact, the research tells us that children's brains are forming over 1 million neural connections per second at this age. And we know that our role as nurturers and as teachers of young children is critical to the preservation, not just of our economy, but of the earth and the people in it. We are offering real knowledge to the youngest humans in our communities, knowledge that will shape their view of the world and allow them to act and to participate lovingly in the building of a better world. So let's remember we do not have what we need to do this work that we love safely. At our school, we have struggled to get what we need to do our work safely, while everyone, including state officials from the Department of Health, have said that it's not possible to be safe due to the nature of our work with young children. We're expected to operate at 100% of our legal capacity and, quote, do our best. We are working through a public health crisis, a global pandemic with little or no health insurance, while the top 5% of income earners in Vermont have saved about $250 million a year since the federal tax cuts in 2018. Will they be locally taxed and asked to pass those savings on to nurses, grocery store workers, and school workers? 
Or is it the school workers that will continue to put their health and safety, their lives on the line for the benefit of an economy that does not even serve us? I know that many are thinking because children are better off in school than at home. So let's ask ourselves then, why don't children have what they need at home? We love our work and we need to work in order to live. In this moment, we do not have what we need to do our work safely. It is time to come together, all of us as school workers, and demand that we start putting people before profits. As a parent, I want what is best for my child. And what's best for my child is to see human life valued above educational policies that do not work during the pandemic. What is best for my child is to know that her teachers and the staff that she loves are listened to, respected, given decision-making power, and met with transparency by the administration. is to be able to trust that her state elected officials and administrators of her school value human life above business as usual. So as both a parent and a fellow educator, I join the call today for a delay to the start of school, for school workers to be included in the decision-making process of when and how to reopen schools. For the protection of vulnerable workers and students. For Vermont families to be economically supported during this crisis. And for science-based reopening and closing criteria. We demand a just and people-centered response to the COVID-19 uh, crisis. before me have detailed the conditions that face educators, students, families, and workers with the new school year set to begin in just a few weeks. They have listed all the relevant questions and considered the many factors at play. For the nearly 170 paraeducators of the Burlington School District, our contract is set to expire in less than two weeks, and the school board has yet to formally engage us in any discussions. We reached out to them in November to begin proceedings. They refused to bargain over COVID-related work, COVID work conditions in March, along with districts across the state, disregarding the legal precedent, declaring their obligation. They waited over six months to send us any of the data that we requested to assist in our preparations and to create a shared context. Directors in central office have perpetuated the false narrative that those paraeducators not providing essential childcare are simply sitting at home collecting pay, despite hundreds of examples of virtual support, meetings, check-ins, and the like. We have been told that we are lucky to still get paid in the spring, that we need to be monitored as, honor as hourly employees so we are not wasting work time. And we have no certainty regarding our employment or roles for the coming year. Similar situations are facing paraeducators, bus drivers, food service, custodians, and other school staff across the state. 
It is imperative that all school employees have a voice in the reopening discussions. We must be recognized for our roles in the education, social emotional growth, and overall well-being of Vermont students. We must be valued as community members, parents, taxpayers, and workers. I am a proud union member, and I believe that worker solidarity is central to any struggle. Race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, nationality, religion, citizenship, and life experience are all critical components of the hard discussions we must continue to have and the study we must engage in. Yet we cannot leave an economic and class analysis out of these efforts. We cannot be pitted against one another for perceived differences or the idea that unions are a protected class among themselves. It is true that unions are imperfect, being made up of human beings. It is true that organized labor has been on the wrong side of history in many instances. It is essential that we study history, learn from it, recognize contradictions, and organically create the organizations that include all working and marginalized persons. We have been reminded by Dr. Fauci and other true experts that there will not be a return to normal, even with the vaccine. This is, of course, a daunting prospect. I would encourage us, however, to not lament this fact. The pre-COVID normal consists of massive social inequity, poverty, hunger, homelessness, unemployment, the largest prison population on earth, unending war and militarism, privatized healthcare, chronically underfunded public education, crumbling infrastructure, corporate media propaganda, and a corrupt political duopoly, as well as a planet on the brink of environmental disaster. Those are all very real today. Some, primarily the feckless Democratic Party establishment, have blustered that Donald Trump is somehow un-American. While his record and personality speak for themselves, black, indigenous, and people of color worldwide have been demanding for 500 years that we recognize that this has been the blueprint since day one. Trump is simply the final product of a bloated and decrepit system of imperialism, white supremacy, and ruthless capitalism that has always been maintained to service those in power at the expense of humanity and the ecosystem. I'm not arguing against the metaphor of a nightmare used by my comrades. I would only reiterate that this is very much our waking reality. As the late comedian George Carlin said, it's called the American dream because you have to be asleep to believe it. So I implore us to not look back to some idealized past or confuse the present as some unique horror. Rather, let us continue to struggle alongside one another, learn from each other, and collectively build the future that we want to see, one that works for all of us and not the few of them. Power to the workers, power to the people. Black Lives Matter. You've been listening to Indigo Radio on Brattleboro's community radio station. You can find more information about the School Workers Action Committee on Facebook. As we end our show today, we remember that COVID affects people in disproportionate ways. Poor people, black and brown people are fed up 
We stand in solidarity with all those fighting for justice. We do not want to return to the same conditions of supremacy that have led to more people being killed by the police. We end our show in solidarity with those standing up for justice in Kenosha. Kenosha, Wisconsin is another city on the lake. The abundance of the trout in the water was its namesake. Once upon a time, cars were made in factories. Now the lakefront is a park. The main attraction is the ease of being between Milwaukee and Chicago. In the city of Kenosha lives a man named Jacob Blake, due east of Minnesota, from the river to the lake. Seven bullets from the cops just for trying to drive away. If you're black, that's what happens if you dare to disobey in between Milwaukee and Chicago. The city of Kenosha erupted right on cue, police station torched. Folks did what they had to do to have a chance of being heard. After all these centuries of festering wounds that keep opening up, of necks and knees in between Milwaukee and Chicago. To Kenosha, Wisconsin, folks came from all around to show their outrage at this freshly bloodied ground, while others came as vigilantes pretending to be cops. And by the time the third night was over, two more beating hearts had stopped in between Milwaukee and Chicago. In the city of Kenosha, there in the county seat, police thanking vigilantes for bringing weapons to the streets, while other vigilantes, or at least wannabes, are speaking to the nation at the convention on TV in between Milwaukee and Chicago. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, the dead and wounded everywhere, an active shooter shooting, not a moment to spare, People tried to intervene. Someone clocked him in the head. The shooter fired back. Anthony Hooper was among the dead in between Milwaukee and Chicago. From the city of Kenosha to the shores of Silver Lake, in the skate parks they'll be talking of the choices people make of those who stand with fascists and uphold apartheid laws, of those who try to stop the killing and end up dying for the cause. In between Milwaukee and Chicago. In between Milwaukee and Chicago. You've been listening Chicago. to Indigo Radio on WVEW, Brattleboro's community radio station. That song was by David Ravix, In Between Milwaukee and Chicago. Hashtag Kenosha. Take care, everyone. See you next week.